0: I thought we could do was talk about like your journalistic investigative aspects. So when sure. you get wind of a new story, how does Tim McMillan proceed on like furthering that investigation and finding out if there's actually any validity to this?
1: No, I mean and, and I won't say that uh you know, I don't want anybody to think that I'm putting on a, like a journalism class here because uh you know, I caution everybody, I'm not a um Classically cha- trained journalist. I'm a investigator by trade. You know that's where my my background is in is in actually law enforcement, police investigations. However, there's a lot of crossover, a lot of synergy. Um, you know, and I I would I'm biased in thinking that maybe the the law enforcement investigator approach that I take might be lead to more credible evidence because I approach it in the same way that I did when I was trying to. You know, the expectation was you were presenting evidence in a courtroom you know, under oath. And, and you were trying to prove something beyond, a, uh, you know, any reasonable doubt. So just about as ground truth as you could. Um, Where well, that's not always the case in journalism. And that's not you know, you're you trying to you're trying to vet a story, but you're not trying to. You know, if you're wrong there, nobody's going to prison for, for any amount of time. Um, right. But, you know, the uh, <clears throat> I'd say the first thing that you do is, you know, for me, is especially when we're talking about the UAP topic, um, for me, it it was kind of getting embedded into the the, the topic itself so that you have some semblance of what's ground truth and where's what's what and where's where. And and so, you know, the first thing in in getting and being able to do that is just connections for me. And, you know, that's getting human connections. And it's a lot of talking to people, a lot of listening to people. And, uh, you know, my journey in those regards, because I primarily focus on just reporting on the, the Department of Defense and what, what is the U.S. government doing with UFOs right now. So that involved me reaching out to a lot of people, getting to know them, people like uh, Luis Elizondo or Christopher Mellon. Um, and then even people who are still inside the Pentagon now, getting to know them as people and individuals first. You know, it seems weird because you want to talk about UFOs. But uh, I'd say, you know, a lot of my initial conversations with Lou Elizondo, uh, you know, tell me about your childhood. Tell me where you grew up. Tell me who your parents are. You know, for me, you know, a lot of what I did in policing was what's called criminal intelligence. So people have this idea of intelligence is kind of the CIA and everything are uh, spies. But intelligence is just information. It's just gobbling up as much information as you can. And so part of that is understanding the people that you're going to be talking to um, in the sources. And it's called human intelligence, human. And you have to know the people and know them well. And so that's a big part of it is starting out as getting to know um, who you're dealing with. You know What are their motivations? What are their interests? What are their goals? Um, everybody has them. And I think that's what's important, is you, you have to be both aware of the people who you're talking to, what is their, what is their intent and motivation, but your own, uh, because we all have biases. And I think that that's one of the things that's also very important, is you start out as getting to know yourself. You know, are you objectively trying to find some information or are you trying to prove something? <laughs> And that's because if you're trying to prove it, um, you have to recognize what are your, what are your ground systems of belief? We all have them, you know, whether it's UFOs, religion, you name it. What are those beliefs? And to recognize that those belief systems that you have there mean that they're going to kind of guide the way you do things. So be cognizant of that, recognize that, you know, if you believe wholeheartedly, uh, that, that aliens are, or excuse me, that UFOs are aliens or extraterrestrials visiting from outer space, they may be, but realize that that belief is going to guide, it's going to slant, and it's going to interpret what right. you hear. Once you kind of understand people and get to know them, a lot of what I've done and, and it, <clears throat> all the information that I've ever kind of published or written on, it all springboards from those kind of relationships of trust and honesty. You're not, you know, you, the people, especially people who are still working in government jobs, they, they want to know that they can they trust you that you're not going to burn them and get their job fired. But they also want to trust that, uh, you know, the information that, that you're going to share and how, you know, how you're going to take whatever they give you is going to be honest and truthful. It's not going to be sensationalized. So, uh, I tell people that they honestly that, you know, there's no magic secret sauce to this. It's a lot of what some people are naturally good at and others can learn at, And it's just human relationships. You, it, it sounds silly, but the first thing you start into getting into a big story is first fostering those relationships and be a good people person. Make friends with people um, and understand that that, you know, when I say make friends with people, it's actually a good way because you know, the people that you come in contact with, the people that I come in contact with at the Pentagon, um, even you know, even Chris Mellon or Lou Elizondo, I may mean, not agree, not just with their interpretation or the information they share in regards to UFOs, but I mean on a personal level, things that we disagree and fight a lot about in society, politics, <laughs> yeah, I don't right. necessarily agree, but once we set that aside. So I'm not looking to make a friend of somebody who is like-minded. I'm looking to get to know somebody and get to know them. It's interesting because you develop a a friendly relationship that is exclusive from all the things that we normally make friends with, which is people who are only interested in what we're interested in. Um, So it broadens your horizon. And I think that that's Probably one of the first things that I would say that this is very important is to broaden that horizon in that you have to talk to people, not just that you agree with going into it, not just that you lionize and consider heroes, or um, but also those that you consider villains or disagree with, because that is very, very necessary in determining ground truth. But like you said, how do you get the big scoop or how do you determine that a big scoop is true? I hear a lot of things every day. (laughs) People email me things, people share all sorts of things, but how do you know that this is accurate and it's not just, you know, the wandering musings of somebody. Um, and that comes from making sure that you, when you approach it, if you're going to look into UAP and UFOs, make sure that your approach is very broad in spectrum. And that means, um, talking to, having some kind of relationship, not just with the people who are, let's say, advocating, uh, the UFO topic, which come on a multitude of spectrums, um, but also those who are the debunkers, uh, air quotes, or, uh, those who are critical and, um, you know that might surprise a lot of people is that I, I've had you know plenty of conversations with people like Mick West who I think a lot of people in the UFO community you know, consider an arch villain. Uh, very good conversations. Like I said, I, I have always said there there is plenty of points that me and Mick disagree on. We we absolutely don't share the same view in certain areas. But as a person, I've always got along with Mick and I think you know it's interesting, but I think in order to, you have to listen to those people who, whose views you don't agree with, or that are, in right. conflict, maybe with, with your own, in order to get this broad picture of things, because um, that's you know, we're all whether it's UAP intelligence, so you're, you're trying to gather intelligence on the UAP topic, or. Right. You're trying to gather intelligence on terrorism or criminals or drug cartels. Um, Intelligence failures always happen in the seams. That's what they call them. So by seams, we mean, all right, you're, you're laser focused, you know, on you're very well versed on, let's say, the entire UFO topic. You know, the history from. Well, for the sake of argument, we'll start uh, in 1947 with the flying saucer craze. So you know the history from 1947 to 2021, like the back of your hand, Um, but you're not as well versed on those debunking theories or those cases that maybe have been hoaxes or all of the other things that could account for UFOs. Uh, Namely, let's say military technology, um, military strategy, geopolitics, bureaucracy, So all of these kind of more boring things, but where your failures and in, in any intelligence failures are going to come is in those seams. It means in between those areas that you're, that you're well-versed in. And, um, you know, that's been probably one of my biggest advice to people who are, are very interested in the UFO topic from the government perspective, um, is people always ask me, you know, they're, they're very, <clears throat> they advocate disclosure. Let's say the government revealing what they know and release of information, videos, you know, the whole nine yards. Um, I have people ask me, well, you know, what's the best book you can recommend on understanding the government and UFOs? What's the best movie I can watch or anything? And I never recommend any UFO books or movies. <laughs> I always recommend I mean Learn bureaucracy, pick up some political science books, read some books, um, you know, even biographies or autobiographies from former high level diplomats who have nothing to do with UFOs. But get an understanding of how the system that you want to look into works. And um, because if you don't understand the system, things will seem really exciting to you. They're actually mundane and just a part of the system. <laughs> uh, right. things might not seem exciting when they really are. They do differ radically from what is the norm. Um, and so for anybody who's really interested in this kind of government side of it, uh, you know, is there a cover up? You know, what is going on with it? That's the scenes where I see the most kind of intelligence failures there with people who are interested in that is just a lack of understanding in in how the
0: government operates on everything that has nothing to do with UFOs. Right. Like the, the, um, I think Christopher Mellon was talking about on Joe Rogan, that if you want to get anything declassified or any further information, it's got to go through all these different bureaucratic policies. And it takes weeks or months for any one of them to get back to you with their approval before you can even go even further up the chain of command. So it sounds like that needs to be reformed somehow, because it seems like it's, if anything, it's killing the project. Absol- with its slowness. Absolutely, I mean, it, <laughs> slowness and bureaucracy,
1: you know, especially in the U S government, um, it's probably universal in most governments worldwide. Um, though I'm not nearly as versed on them. So I'll limit it to the U S government, but that's, that's a problem with everything. And so this is kind of an interesting way when we talk about making connections with people, there's plenty of officials because I do report on a lot of different things, uh, in the defense and intelligence community. And so there's, there's plenty of times that I will make connections with pastor uh, high level, um, government executives or officials or current executive officials. And the conversations initially have to do with anything but UFOs. So it's that same bureaucratic processes, that same frustrations with budgets and, you know, dealing with politicians and the public doesn't understand. So all of these things that, you know, bleed in to the UAP topic, but uh, they deal with, uh, you know, battleships and planes. And so we have a lot of discussions about that um, to get an understanding of it of how the process works, because it's not gonna be radically different. If we're talking about aircraft carriers or we're talking about UFOs, uh, you know, bureaucracy is very rigid. There's, a, there's policies for everything. And, you know, it brings to a good example when you said like, how do you kind of vet a good story? How do you know when you're on a good story or how do you kind of verify somebody's information? Um, it's understanding. Once you understand those processes, suddenly, you know, you can have a conversation. Chris Mellon's a good example because of what he said on Joe Rogan or one of the early conversations that I had with uh, Chris, probably, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago. And we talked about, um, you know, well, what's the idea that I think we were talking about the 2004 Nimitz events, you know, what's the idea that this could be a classified technology, you know, that's been hidden 15, 16 years now. And it's interesting because it, his first thing, Went exactly where the bureaucratic somebody like Chris, who has been a former uh, undersecretary for intelligence in the government, should go, which right. is straight to the bureaucracy. It was straight to the, yeah, you know, I've thought about this, but how do you, you know, where does the money come from? Where does the infrastructure come from? Because this this idea is, is very easy to say, oh well, it's a classified program. It's you know, this is some top secret technology. But once you understand that behind that, behind every classified program, there's infrastructure, meaning there's people that work on the program. There's logistics that are involved. Uh, There's this giant supply chain that's required for that. So it's not easy to really hide something of massive scale. Uh, The example that I give people in that regard is, you know, I, I live here in Germany now. Spangdalem Air Base right here, um, where I live, there's, you know, there's a grocery store, there's a quasi little, uh, you know, Walmart-esque place, you know, there's gas stations, there's a hospital, there's bowling alleys, movie theaters, you name it, you know, it's, it's a small city. That all exists for 24 fighter jets. <laughs> that's all it's all that's here is one fighter jet squadron. <laughs> so that
0: Oh really?
1: Yeah. yeah. So all of that infrastructure is needed because you have to have mechanics to work on the planes. You have to have radar operators. You have to have all of these, you know, the police that guard the base. So there's all of these other intangibles that are necessary. And then once you recognize that, you go, "Yeah, where, where, where would you hide tic tacs like that? (laughs) You know, where would you hide all of these people that are required to, to kind of make that program run?" And and that's where Chris's mind went first. And that was one of those things where I went, OK, this guy, you know, we talk about motivation and intent. Uh, you know, th- this guy's mind is going exactly where I would expect somebody with his background to go. He's looking at it the exact, you know, in a rational way that I would expect from somebody who's spent a career inside government. And he's not trying to sell me um, uh, necessarily the the alien theme and and you know dismiss it from all these different angles he's taking you know where he's dismissing that idea of it being secret tech is exactly what i would expect and so that's where you kind of you you're, you're vetting people as you talk to them and go okay this is you know this is what i would expect somebody from his position to say uh and he's accurately assessing it so this is kind of a check in the this person's providing credible information block.
0: It's I, I liked what you said about the team or the crew that would be needed to operate even like the TikTok, Tac, because a technology like that, like, let's assume it's another country. Mm-hmm. That technology alone would require such an engineering, uh, I would say, advancement and team that it would be impossible for them to hide it in the ocean without the Americans knowing about, I mean, you think about the reconnaissance technology that we have, we'd be able to trace this thing down and yet we can't because they just fire off into the atmosphere and, you know, into space or underneath the water. And it just, it becomes a logistic nightmare for any tracking.
1: Well, absolutely. And, And I mean, and there's a multitude of things that I think people, and this is what goes back into, like I said, if you want to understand um, kind of the significance of the UAP from from a government standpoint, uh, you know, pick up a lot of books on technology, military technology and government, because then this picture becomes actually more significant. And I understand people are like, that's boring. I don't want to argue about that. I get it. Um, I, I totally get it. But you understand, let's say. Secrecy costs money, and, and people don't think about that, but money is always in, in every high-level principal official that I've spoken with, and even hmm. in, like I said with Chris Mellon, the mind always goes to money because we have this image because, especially with the U.S. government, um, they spend trillions of dollars on the fence. And so to the average person, to us, that's just an ungodly amount, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a million yeah. and I'm good. But it is a finite amount. There is not just unlimited money to throw everywhere. And so, you know, it gets divvied up to all these places. And so there's just they have a budget just like anybody else. So they've got to figure out how to spend that money. And secrecy costs a lot of money, um, especially if you're talking about secrecy, you know, going back to the Tic Tac again. So we're, we're on you know, what, 15, 16, 17 years now. If, if this was a secret program, who is operating it? Like I said, where is this, this giant logistics and supply chain? And assuming if it's military, the average person in the military, uh, you know, they do four years and they get out. You know, they do their most people do their first initial term. You have some people who make a career of it uh, and usually 20 is the most. So we're kind of we're getting close to that 20 mark with them. But, you know, if this was a military program, um, especially considering, you know, when they saw it in 2004, if it was operational and you, you have enough trust to fly it around other fighter jets, that means it's a operational program. So this is something, this isn't prototyping. Like we're, we're putting it into scenarios. So you, this is something that's already been worked on for five years or more. Um, where are all those people that, did their four-year, eight-year enlistments got out? You know they're all keeping quiet, so either yeah, you know, keeping them quiet. So if you're going to keep tabs on this, if you want to just lock this down airtight because you need that extreme secrecy, that means you're checking up on them. That means that you have uh, FBI or counterintelligence personnel who are periodically checking up on them to find out what are they doing now. Are they a Counterintelligence risk? You know, are they, you know, has there been some financial troubles, some relationship troubles? You know, are they a risk to letting this secret go? Uh, You know, when I spoke to T.D. Barnes, who had worked at Area 51 for a number of years on the A 12 uh, spy plane, you know, he said that at least once a year after he left for a number of years, the FBI would check in to see. You know, was he, was there any financial issues? Was there any kind of marital issues what's going on? Just to find out if he was a risk. Uh,
0: the, yeah. yeah. Somebody has to pay for that. Because <laughs> if you're financially, you know, struggling, you might want to write a book about your experiences or come out to Oprah. I get it.
1: Or, or and especially in today's age where uh, yeah. everybody puts, you know, foreign governments to recruit people to, to share secrets to them. They don't even have to travel anymore. You know, they can go to LinkedIn now and people put their whole resume right. on there. And, and that actually yeah. happens quite frequently. You know, the, the foreign government of China is does it exceptionally where they go through LinkedIn and find these people who held these positions and then message them, Hey, you know, we'd like you to come do a talk at, you know, or we have a think tank here who's doing a study and we'll pay you 30 grand, you know, sounds innocuous they get you there and then it you know they keep trying to you know you want to make more money
0: uh type deal so yeah i mean it's see that sounds a lot like lazar's story because i read his book and that's exactly what they did to him when they stopped calling him in is because they were spying in on his wife and they knew that she was banging the flight instructor that she was with (laughs) And they thought he was gonna find out and then be a risk, you know. So that's why they weren't calling him in. He panicked because he didn't know about his wife's affair. So, but they were keeping tabs on him the whole time. And there was always somebody around him, or sure. Yeah, you're right. That would cost money to keep and that's that was just one staff member. You gotta think they got how many hundreds? Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you you're and you're exactly right. You're having to keep tabs on your current staff. And former staff. And so as the time passes, the former staff keeps growing. And so this chain of people that, that you would have to keep tabs on grows exponentially, and it all costs money. And it's all, you know, you, you, I've got to hire 10 new agents just to monitor this one program. And suddenly, what you would have by this point is the cost of secrecy outweighs the cost of the program. And you're going, is it right. really effective? Um, then the other side of that is understanding how military defense technology is used in the world stage. It, you know, all militaries of the world, to a large degree, they all keep some secrets, you know, in the in the event of war. Uh, but, yeah, a large part of it is uh, and the reason that they, you know, whether it's Russia, China, the U.S. justifies spending massive amounts and you know buying all this new hardware is oddly enough, not to ever go to war. It's to say, look at all that we have. You would not be able to yeah. counter this. So, you know, you don't even want to go to war. And that's why, uh, especially in countries like China or North Korea or Russia, they have these big military parades, Iran, where they parade around these giant missiles. Sometimes those aren't even real. You know, sometimes they don't even work, but
0: it's this projection <laughs> of hard power. And so... yeah. yeah. It's like the Macy's parade. Right. right. And so. Yeah. Just show and tell. exactly. Yeah.
1: And so you reach a point where the U.S. Would, would be looking at it going, you know, if this was a secret program, it's costing us more to keep it secret than it is to run it. And we're not getting the kind of positive benefit that we can in peacetime out of it in that, you know, we show off we've got this capability and suddenly nobody wants to mess with the West. And so we're good or or. Russia and China now are scrambling and spending billions to try to catch up and try, you know, all of their focus on how do we get this? You know, very much like after uh, the U.S. detonated the nuclear bomb. you know, Everybody's like, oh, we got to get that. So this is our focus now. So, yeah, there's a whole bunch of factors that the idea of uh, it being secret technology doesn't make sense. A whole bunch other than just the whole it how it flies around or how it looks. But again, it's kind of a, how do you recognize that? as just having some understanding of the whole system, having an having understanding of how how these technology, how conventional military technologies are used. How is the F-35 used, um, you know, you, it yeah. gives you an idea of how, how would how would the same be used if we had this tac technology?
0: Well, even when you said secrecy equals money. Uh, when that incident took place in 2004 I want to say the, mm-hmm. uh, when the Navy had captured it on on video within 20 minutes of them having loaded it and watched it a helicopter landed on deck two men in just you know uh, casual clothing came in took all the evidence and then fucked off. Mm-hmm. Right. Pardon my, my English, but that's exactly what happened. (laughs) Now the security clearance that you would need to land on a U.S. Navy ship, walk in and outrank everybody to take the, you know, the evidence that was there and then just leave that, that is the part that I'm very, you know, sort of wanting, that's not private industry, you know, that that is a part of the government that doesn't answer to anyone. And like you said, secrecy equals money. When, uh, Donald Rumsfeld said there was like trillions of dollars, some along those lines that was missing from the defense department budget. I mean, the Senate should be inquiring as to like, where is this money leaking to? Cause there's no accountability to it. And then when they try to find the receipts and there's a $1,500 hammer receipt, like, is that thing made of pure gold? <laughs> like, you know, you could tell that they're, they're leaking the money and they're making up excuses and contracts, uh, fake, fake contracts to, account for where the money's being leaked, but it's, you know, usually you you follow the money, you, you, you know, you, you get to the uh, the guilty culprit, but in this case, it's so well hidden and so well organized that I'm wondering how much of the, the, the budget actually goes to these programs.
1: Well, And you bring up an interesting point and it it goes to our kind of our overarching conversation right here. Um, Let's take the, the, the helicopter that landed in 2004 and seized all the data. Um, it's easy to kind of look at that and hear what the uh, what the the different Navy sailors have said and the pilots have said, <clears throat> excuse me, about that event. And then suddenly, you know, to have these visions of, oh, okay, like is this, you know, kind of a men in black scenario or this is like a separate agency that's come in and flown in, mm-hmm. but it doesn't necessarily have to be the case. And, 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 you know, there's also much more mundane, but but I think plausible explanations, uh, for example, uh, probably one of the uh, arguably the best that I've heard to explain that event was from somebody who was a former NCIS agent. And it was you know what he said he believed and had actually been told, I don't even think I've written about this. So this is exclusive for you. What he was told actually happened to all of that.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: that.
0: In, UAP exclusive right, with Tim. Right. Minutes. Here you go.
1: Um, you know, all of these ships or excuse me, the, the carrier would have had in NCIS, which is Naval Naval Criminal Investigative Services. So kind of like the TV show NCIS that was popular for a while. Right. Um, they're they're detectives. Uh, they're, they're law enforcement, but they're detectives and they're assigned to the ships. And, you know, he explained to me that normally there will be one on the carrier. But when you're doing workups pre-deployment, which is what the, uh, the Nimitz group was doing back in 2004, when they encountered these, you would have had two on the ship because they uh, you would have had the one who was assigned to the Nimitz previously and then the one who was coming on to go out to deployment together. So the one that was going off would be giving the new guy the ropes he said you know the captain of the ship uh, or the commander of the carrier group ask him to go and collect all of this data and information for him um you know is the ncis agents they they have a level they have a level of autonomy a if the commander the captain of the ship tells you or if it's by his order you're an extension. You're a proxy of him. So you kind of carry his authority. So if you walk in and you've got you know, you've got the golden letter with you that says, you know, captain told me to come. You know, nobody's going to give you any guff um, and they're not going to ask any questions. And he said that, you know, that was what he was told happened. They went around, collected the stuff, went back, gave it to the admiral's aide, And that was it that they didn't even know until many years later, like the rest of us about all the UFO stuff. You know, they had no clue right um and so that is a plausible explanation there so yes like how could you have this other agency or entity that that maybe controls this information and scoops it up well we might not (laughs) you know it might be right a lot of instances like this now the question of course goes what happened with that data after that you know you know because i think that that's a more plausible in the immediate how could these people show up within 30 minutes i think you know the idea that these NCIS agents uh, or somebody acting on the admiral's order could be like collect all this stuff because we need to turn it in to some kind of intel, you know, somebody to figure out what it is, um, you know, where it where it went from that point forward is the interesting question to me. And um, there's certainly a lot of you know, there's a lot of offices hidden all throughout government where you could have it being analyzed yeah um yeah more than we even realize more possibly than the even the current uap task force realizes you know that's what's interesting is that uh government's very it's very disconnected it's very disjointed and people are people are super (laughs) territorial you know that's
0: what uh and politically fighting too like you know because that's the problem with the United States that it's more of a soap opera with the political realm. Like even what happened recently with, um, oh man, I'm bad with names. A Republican Senator just got ousted. But oh yeah. Just cause she he didn't want to get Donald Trump back in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you could tell just stuff like that will happen in the bureaucratic aspects, like lower down the scale. I mean, that just continues. Yeah. That- so I think that is a huge problem for advancement. I think Lou also mentioned that there was a huge religious aspect as well, mm-hmm. um, because there's a lot of religious people within the political realm. Sure. And they don't necessarily agree with the UAP, uh, old school UFO theories, because that sort of goes against their beliefs and what they're trying to base the country off of. Um, and so I think that that's another aspect of our species that we need to address when it comes down to this phenomenon. And you mentioned that beautifully earlier, the belief system versus the actual facts and not filtering the facts through your belief system.
1: Sure. And, and I think there's there's something to be said about that. I think, uh, gosh, I cannot for the life of me at this moment think of the title of the book. But Nick Redfern wrote a book um, a couple of years ago uh i know when i say nick Redfern wrote a book that's not going to narrow it down because nick's probably written two books while we've been doing this interview god bless him <laughs> i like nick i really do but he can turn out some books um but yeah. he wrote a like Stephen King, right yeah, yeah. um gosh what is the name imminent threat maybe I, either the, the book is on it's very interesting and it is we now have um you know, declassified uh, FBI documents and FOIA documents backing up what his, a lot of the claims in his book, but this book was about Jack Parsons. Jack Parsons, uh, a lot of people, you know, maybe aren't as familiar with, but he, you know, Von Braun, Braun, there we go, gets a lot of credit (laughs) for being the grandfather of rocketry, but but, uh, Von Braun, himself said jack parsons is really the grandfather of rocketry um but jack parsons in fact uh, established uh, jet propulsion laboratories which is where nasa now you know, you know when they just launched the mars rover that's where it was created at uh, jpl is a big player in the in the propulsion rocketry game to this day and jack parsons established it in fact jpl a lot of people joke say it's jack parsons laboratory instead of jet propulsion um, But Jack Parsons was also a very interesting character, to put it mildly. Um, Jack, you know, pretty well known. Uh, He was a member of uh, Alastair Crawley's church. So, um, you know, his kind of very er esoteric um, witchcraft, for lack of a better term right now, um, in you know, he was a running mate with L. Ron Hubbard, who founded Scientology. So he was right. you know, in this uh, culture, big time, big, big, big time. In fact, I believe he established a some sort of a occult church in California where he was. And it was very much an occultist. Um, and he would perform all of these different rituals and everything. And um, He. Also, the reason he's not as well-known is he blew himself up, by the way. but um,
0: Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. This, we, That's how I picture my death as well. So.
1: Yeah, we, we don't have time to get into all of it. But he was a, uh, you know, he he ended up losing his security clearance and, because he had some uh, communist ties and all this. He was an interesting character. But I digress. The whole moral of the book was is that the the FBI and there was this contingency within government who believed that during, you know, Jack Parsons uh, rituals, his occult rituals, he had called, you know, into being or, you know, opened a gateway, if you will, to allow um, what we consider UFOs in to this realm. And that these were demons Hmm. Um, for a lot of people that may sound totally ridiculous, but the FBI very much followed him. Very much interviewed friends, you know, kept tabs on him, tapped phones. This was something that some people actually took seriously because, you know, it was around the time that he was doing these occult rituals is when the 1947 wave kind of kicked off. And, and it's been sometimes I've read the book, but I, I believe he was even uh, he had some ties to Kenneth Arnold, who was the first person you know, to coin the, the phrase flying saucer and saw. Uh, the, the infamous flying saucers in 1947, and so, uh, but this kind of belief that that going down through the generations that Jack you know, was was believed by people enough willing to spend money to follow him around and the FBI and government that he had the UFOs were real, but he had allowed these demonic entities to enter into our realm uh, was very much you know they believed it, at least some. And so that idea to continue to carry on today, I don't think that's crazy at all. And in fact, um, you know that that idea that um, that UFOs or flying demons that that goes back into biblical times. You can find reference to that in the New Testament. Right. Um, so that's it's it's certainly ezekiel's wheel and mm -hmm. yeah well even specifically that that you know that that, the devil or satan's realm was in the sky um that's you know that was a uh you know that was a belief going into a lot of different cultures pre-israelite and then later like i said in the new testament that you would see that um you can find references to it in fact there's a there's a direct uh there's a direct verse in the New Testament that references the sky, these sky demons being, you know, Satan's realm is in the sky. So, can you have people who today uh, would fundamentally believe that? And, you know, especially when confronted with something that, uh, you know, mainstream culture that they've grown up in has told them isn't real, but then they're looking at it on either high-speed, high really sophisticated surveillance systems that are captured by the government that you're like, okay, no, that's real. And for people to go, okay, but it's got to be evil. You know, it's it's yeah. supernatural. We don't need to mess with it. I think that's, that's not crazy.
0: <laughs> well, near where, um, well, in your area of the world, I think was uh, 16th century, something like that, when they witnessed a battle above a city between different orbs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to them, in a religious aspect, to them, that would be angels fighting demons. I mean, they wouldn't see it as anything else. But there's a painting of it you can actually see. And it depicted this battle that took place. And, I mean, you see, like, hundreds of orbs in the sky. So it must have been quite an epic sight for that town to have witnessed. Yeah, can you imagine? I mean, that's a, I,
1: I had a... I had a chance to see the Starlink satellites for the first time the other night. And that was pretty cool. But could you imagine seeing something when absolutely nothing, you know, there there is no planes, there's no satellites supposed to be in the sky. Yeah, that would be crazy.
0: <laughs> and this was during broad daylight as well, I believe. So it's quite intense. But you, you hear stories like that, uh, even Jacques Vallée uh, in his book, and he talks about in Brazil how some people even got attacked in the 70s by these tiny little orbs that would just you know shoot people then it became anemic or they had uh, very low iron some people even died because of it. now if you're a religious person you would see that as being attacked by the devil or something right because when people die you'll get really sick sure well and
1: that's in a way it's understandable because if you if you take a step back and look at the ufo topic in general broadly speaking it's very paranormal and i don't mean it that paranormal in the ghost hunting kind of way. I just mean that everything that surrounds it, no one seems to act normally. Um, and I deal with this a lot of times when trying to report on it or do things, you know, the Pentagon, who is very by the book and everything's rigid and, and, you know, a good example is when they confirmed the, the images and video that Jeremy Corbell, uh, Leaked, or they were, they were leaked to Jeremy Corbell and he published uh, about a month or so ago. Um, you know, the Pentagon spokespeople who had for years, you know, not talked to me amongst many other journalists, um, you know, refused to really comment on anything much of all. Um, you know, within 24 hours, like, oh yeah, oh yeah, those are real, those are ours. I mean, totally <laughs> abnormal. It was paranormal. Like it's yeah. like people don't behave the way they you would normally, they would normally act. You know, objects are seen behaving abnormally or paranormally. So it's a very paranormal topic. Um, it's difficult. There's no ground truth and that's, that's difficult. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, if you, know, if you or I were, and I, and I know the, the cases that you're talking about with Jacques, um, it was in South America. There were a number of them. I mean, and, and there's, you know, medical evidence to corroborate all of this. So it's not just yeah. just stories. But, you know, if you had people and they were suffering from acute radiation injuries, if a orb, a glowing orb floated into URI's house and zapped us, I mean, <laughs> you know, what would maybe, you know, depending on what our uh, pre-existing belief systems were, maybe we would maybe we would. Probably both go. Okay, this is aliens. (laughs) This is UFOs. But but if you don't have that belief system, if you were a more uh, kind of traditionally religious person, to say this is some type of demons. That's. I mean, what else could it be? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But I've seen people in the church dismiss what they've seen completely because it doesn't fit the narrative or the box that they're trying to put themselves in so they will have witnessed something or experienced something and they will dismiss it entirely because as a species like i said our our, are i shouldn't say as i said but we're very fragile in our ego and our belief system and anything that happens that takes us out of that is damaging to our psyche. And I think, you know, even talking to people uh, that have studied, people in the church have had abduction cases or experiences. They try to look at it from a a religious point of view. So they're just saying it's either demons that are doing that to them or it's angels, but you could clearly see it's the same pattern as an alien abduction that takes place with other people. And I say that loosely alien because I've never experienced Mm -hmm. it. I've never seen an alien But I'm fascinated by the subject of abduction, of course. And I think they go hand in hand with the phenomenon. I mean, if the phenomenon turns out to be real, that we do have crafts of unknown origin flying around, doing whatever they want, that means they could do whatever they want to the people as well. Because they're sort of flying with impunity and there's nothing our technology can do to stop it right now because they're more advanced. so that that to me is a possibility. At least I'm looking at it in that sense.
1: Sure. Well, I, I think um, I, I, mean, I get a kick out of um, maybe some of the, the dismissals, uh, especially from, let's say, people who are in government or politicians. Um, uh, the one that I'm thinking of off the top of my head that I was just, you know, <laughs> I, I couldn't help but chuckling about was uh, recently Mark Walker, who is the uh, chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, who just signed the UAP bill. Um, he did a he did a short interview and and they were talking about this whole UAP thing. And he said, yeah, you know, they put it in there and, you know, it's unknown. And, you know, we do need to get to the bottom of it. All true and all accurate, I think. Um, but he kind of in closing, you know, just shrugged it off and said, yeah, it's it's probably it's probably just adversaries technology and kind of smiled and and I thought, you know, you put that in perspective. Is, oh, it's probably just, you know, a foreign power that wants to do harm to us And, and you
0: know. No biggie. No biggie. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I,
0: <laughs> I mean they buzz by the navy and make them look silly, but who cares? It's nothing.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, it was the it was kind of equitable to say, and you know, if somebody came in and reported that they saw someone drop off a very suspicious package out in front of a federal building and the police going, oh, it's, it's probably a terrorist. It's not, you know, it's nothing to be too concerned about. That was <laughs> the kind of tone. And I thought uh, it's just yeah. interesting that that was a more palatable kind of view that, oh, yeah, it's probably not. Aliens, or something, It's probably just a foreign embassy. It's probably a terrorist, no biggie. Um, I don't know that that's, you know, I think uh, Marco Rubio's response was probably a, a, more in line with mine when he said, you know, he would hope it wasn't, you know, China, Russia, Iran, or a, for, a foreign power who wanted to exert control of the world stage because that would be bad news <laughs> potentially.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing is, then we would be out, you know, the technology would be out there and they would have absolute control. I mean, human behavior usually means like, you know, think of Cortez when he landed on the uh, the shore, like what he did to uh, the Mayans and Incas. I mean, it's just absolutely annihilated them because of his technology, his political know-how. And the fact is that they were less evolved than he was. So that's our biggest fear. We don't want to get Cortez. And, you know, I understand that. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that we're not working as a unity on this planet. Everything's compartmentalized within countries. And that, I think, is our our downfall, is that the lack of communication or cooperation globally on this issue.
1: Sure. Well, yeah, I I think, uh, you know, going back again, because things are just paranormal, it it allows people to shrug their shoulders very easily. And so, you you know, going back to Mark Walker's statement. Oh, it's probably just an adversary oh he he. um but the reason that you don't see a more dramatic response from him and the reason that he's not the reason that they're not holding you know massive hearings on the floor and they don't have the secretary of defense on the carpet right now saying what are you doing about this is because they realize that something doesn't match up with that namely you know there are there are very well-known uh geopolitical goals that you know, the major foreign adversaries to the West want to achieve, you know, whether it's China with Taiwan. They've made no secrets about this. They, they want Taiwan re- re- reunited as part of mainland China. Um, Russia. Oh, yeah. Russia wants.
0: That's like, I want my girlfriend. Right. Back. Exactly. Yeah. There's nothing you can do about <laughs> right. you it. You can yeah.
1: date other people, but we're still, you know, they. Yeah. Taiwan's dating other people, but China refuses to grant them a divorce. And so and
0: it's like a stalker at Walmart, you know, just like
1: you'll be back every step you take. Right. (laughs) Um, And and Russia has made no mince words about it, uh, that they want, you know, the former Soviet Union back together. And and more important than that, they want to be viewed as a world power very much. And so, you know, Mark Walker can kind of chuckle it off because he realizes, well, wait a minute. If this was Russian or Chinese just recently with Russia when they amassed on the borders of Ukraine, there's nothing. Nobody's going to stop them. They're going to take it back and there's nothing you're going to do about it. Uh, China's going to come over there and take over Taiwan. There's nothing you're going to do about it. But we don't see that. We see the normal posturing, the normal little kind of cat and mouse games that go on. uh, But nobody's saying, like you said with Cortez, that we are so much more technologically advanced than you that I don't really care what, you know, NATO and, and anybody else has to say, we're going to do it. Yeah. We don't see that. <laughs> right. We don't see that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, it, you know, in one hand you have this, well, alien seems ridiculous. So it's probably Russia or China, but you can sleep well at night because you realize that Russia, neither Russia or China is acting in a way that, would lead anyone to believe that they possess that technology. And so it's kind of this ego to stop. And I
0: think you mentioned last time. Yeah. And I think you mentioned last time that Russia's broke. So yeah, they don't have much money to throw into technology this advanced. No,
1: it's, it's very much, um, you know, on this kind of a projection of power, um, without the really the power behind it. There's a lot of barking. There's a lot of, uh, you yeah, that's why, and they just had their, their May Day celebration, uh, May 9th when they celebrate the, the big victory in World War II. That's why they cling to that great victory and kind of skip out a whole chunk of history. Um, it's about yeah. projecting power and wealth and everything, but it's not actually having it behind them. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it, <laughs> you would just have to one,
0: yeah, where
1: would you, yeah, you know, why would you waste time, you know, building one su 57 a year, which is all that uh, we currently believe that they are capable of building is one su 57 yeah, I think per we year.
0: You did that last time. Yeah. <laughs> Takes a while. Yeah. Right.
1: And, and yeah, we just don't see and to a large part. We know kind of what the defense budgets for these countries are, what they're spending. You know, so where would they have developed this so cheaply? I mean, (laughs) you think about all the different factors. Uh, If someone was able to master this kind of energy source that that would be required for for a lot of the things that people report seeing, it would change everything. You know, they would be the masters of the universe. (laughs) And, And we don't see that. Yeah.
0: So, yeah. And be able to go harvest stuff on the moon and back. I mean, if you have that sort of technology or go explore the ocean to a depth that we've never been able to do before. Let's just face it. We don't have that capability. Like we're still watching documentaries where they put submarines and air tanks and people still have to depressurize. These things don't have to do that. They could go from the bottom of the ocean into space and there's no in-between time. It would so obviously that technology is beyond our understanding of what our bodies can even handle.
1: Correct. And we've, we've really focused a lot on like the military application of this, but but it's not just that. And that's the other reason why you wouldn't want to keep it secret is the, the projection of soft power, which is if you had that, just like you said, uh, you know, I forget what the Paid, but I just so we just did an article on the debrief about it. You know, the Japanese billionaire who's probably spent a billion so that he can uh, you know go to the ISS, the International Space Station. You know, this is tourist, a space tourist. If you had this technology that you could take every, if China was like, hey guys, fifty bucks, you can ride on the China Space Express, and you forget a cruise ship around the ocean, you can fly to the moon and back. Yeah. The projection of soft power to people worldwide would be you know i'd be the first in line to, to jump on my chinese or russian space tourism jet you know suddenly my you would know, change yeah. entire views of of uh, these nations and, and suddenly you your you know, people are tend to be very self-centered uh you know if if china could get you to the moon and back or take you to the lowest depths of the ocean you're like hey yeah Communism. That's not not that bad, bad. you know. Hey, (laughs) Taiwan. You should, you know, people in Taiwan would say, "Hey, we're we're cool. Let's let's join up." So yeah, this projection of soft power of being able to, you know, that's it's one of the reasons that just recently Russia and China announced that they were going to team up to. Uh, provide vaccines to the world of COVID because, you know, people, Oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, these are great. They've, they've saved us. And so it's, it's all this yeah. kind of a geopolitical game and uh, we don't see that, <laughs> you know, and we, we should, if they had it, um, Yeah, you know, that would be.
0: And, and, and let's just face it. When people see these things, it's always at random and at, you know, it's never the same spot. And usually um, if you see them, it lasts very, very it's not, it's not long, it's usually a very brief sighting. So trying to pinpoint it from where it's coming from. And and if it was China, man, they're 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 doing really good because they're flying all over the world, the Antarctic, the North, it doesn't matter, they're everywhere. So it's not realistic. Like I said, possibility versus plausibility, you know, like is it you know, possible that China has a technology? Yes. But is it most likely them? No, because we know how human behavior is. And these things have shown incredible uh, resistance. If anything, they've taken the high road every single time. Somebody goes to fire on these things. These things either take off or shut off the plane, like, don't fire at me, Uh But they've shown extremely, um, you know, throughout the past, the last 75 years, as far as I know, I mean, they could have easily taken us out if they wanted to with the technology they must possess, whatever these things are. Sure. When it comes, yeah. And and they've taken the high road. Even Kevin Day from uh, the Princeton, he was talking about um, how they've taken the high road. Like they've shown extreme patience and um, I wouldn't say compassion, but at least understanding of our, warmongering ways and that whenever we're afraid we seem to fire first and ask questions later. Sure.
1: Yeah. It's just <clears throat> we just don't see the things that would be consistent. And even if it was like I said, the, the idea of keeping it secret American technology just doesn't make sense. Because you know and, and but even more so when you're looking at uh you know Western adversaries, so potential adversaries, uh China, Russia, Iran, you know If they had a technology that they could commercialize, A, the economy, you know, how much of how much that would bolster the economy. But then again, I go back to that kind of projection of soft power. If China could get you to where you live in Canada, but you could have a job in Miami that you went to work every day because you flew there on this Tic Tac. They got there in 30 seconds or even if you were able to get to work in, you know. 30 seconds, because this thing can fly so fast, suddenly your view towards China is going to be really good. And if China wants to end up absorbing all of Asia, so take on Japan, Taiwan, everything in democratic systems, you know, whether it's Canada, the U.S., when it comes to declaring war or even fighting to defend that, ultimately, you know, the United States, the Congress has to approve war, you know, the declaration of war. If all the people are like, hey, we're not that bad, we're not going to support fighting with them. They're going to take away our super cool, you know, tic-tac jets or whatever where I go to work. They're not – you're not going to see any resistance to that. And in fact, that's kind of the goal of all governments is not to conquer people by force, but rather the people want to be conquered themselves. And so we just don't see
0: that. If they get something out of it. they're okay with giving some part of their freedom. Sure.
1: Yeah. And it's, we don't see that. And so I just find it very hard to believe that, that anybody could have it and would think that it would be a great idea to keep it secret when you could commercialize it. You know I mean? Sure. We have military jets, <laughs> yeah. but we have commercial, we have more commercial planes <laughs> so we can fly around. Yeah.
0: yeah. And why, why would we still be burning fuel, And all that, if we had the technology considering the state of the world, Tim, from your perspective, because of the people that you have in your circle, what's like your general feeling towards this June um, Senate? thing? I know you've been asked this a Mm -hmm. lot, but like. Are you getting the feeling that there might be a few bombshells in there or is that just going to be pretty much what we already know? I, just sort of more debrief to the, oh, sorry for the pun, but debrief to the uh, Senate there. I,
1: I think, well, I think that, uh, I think we're going to probably see an extension in June, meaning that they're going to ask for an extension and we're, we're not going to see a report come out in June. Um, I don't know how long the extension, you know, it could be six months, it could be. Who knows? I think before the year is over, we, we'll probably get something. Um, but I I don't, uh, you know, I would love to be surprised. I really would. But my heart of hearts, I think that we will we'll probably not see anything that's going to be mind blowing. And in fact, I expect it to more be kind of a precursor action for more funding, you know, saying uh, I doubt that we'll get any specificity into, you know, there's been. This many incursions. Uh, here's the dates. Here's what we saw. Uh, we may get a very, very broad strokes. You know, we have had a number of incursions that were not easily explained or couldn't be identified by personnel or systems. You know, see classified annex. <laughs> that classified annex yeah. will probably have the listing. And I think a large part of it will say that. Uh, you know, here's all the reasons or problems that we you know, have enable in in allowing us to positively identify these after the fact. Here's what we need, um, because the task force, which is what we have right now, uh, that's a finite thing. You know, it's only a temporary measure. And so I think that likely we could see something that's, you know, maybe disappointing to a lot of the the UFO enthusiasts or people who follow this topic for a very long time. Um, because it's going to be more akin to a sales pitch of why we need a permanent office. And that's what I think we will most likely see. I mean, that's my instinct. But I'd love to be wrong, but we'll
0: see. (laughs) Well, the Scientific Coalition of uh, UAP Studies, I mean, they've been working with uh, saying to the Senate, hey, if you need us on board, which they should really take them up on that offer. I mean, they're mostly all PhDs and uh, people of high reputation. so I, to for them to get involved and maybe work with the Senate to help out, I mean, these you got people that can calculate you know the physics of these things. You got biologists that are willing to you know go out in the field and investigate if there's a landing, what does it do to the ground? I mean, there's a lot more enthusiasts, uh, you know, people of science now getting involved and and saying to uh, the Senate, hey, just bring us on. we'll 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 gladly work on this with you so that that's really cool to see the community the scientific community step it up like that too sure to back it up you know well, I, and i think it would be i
1: you know i think one of the best case scenarios possibly uh, better than what we have right now is instead of immediately them agreeing just set up an office let's say uh, and it's usually how government works and and i told somebody this, this is, this is kind of what I could foresee is this first, this kind of report that says, here's all the deficiencies that we have. And then they go, okay, well, now we're going to fund a committee and a committee is, is all non-government personnel. Usually it's made up, a, a good example would be, um, and they just turned in their report, um, would be the committee on artificial intelligence, um, which was all made up of, Industry heads or experts in computer science and artificial intelligence, along with uh, recently retired U.S. officials, that type of thing. And so I think it would. But in the end, they do. They turn in, you know, I think the Committee for Artificial Intelligence turned in a I don't know how many hundreds of pages uh, report of what their recommendations, what what are the the different avenues that they believe should be taken, that type of thing. Um, from my understanding of w- what the task force has in terms of resources and everything, now I don't think that they have enough to be able to turn in anything comprehensive like that. And so it's going to require a, this idea that uh, you know elected leaders go, okay, this is significant enough. Let's fund a committee. Let's get some more people on this. But going back to what you said about the scientific coalition for ufology. Uh, I think it is incumbent upon this that you have to, you can't just have active military personnel examining it. Um, You know, there reaches a point and and I think they're justifiably they can go, look, (laughs) I I, I can handle military strategy. I can do all these other things, but we're kind of if we're going to go into a much larger explanation, here and we're going to explore this in depth we've got to have other players we got to have other cooks in the kitchen because if for no other reason that you're going to reach a point where you're like look i don't know let's shoot one out of the sky or try to at least <laughs> you know because that's if, if you <laughs> yeah. if you had an iranian drone flying near your base I and mean, what do you do hey let's shoot it out of the sky and see if we can take it apart <laughs> um
0: well just you know for instance what's taking place in israel uh and palestine right now like there was a picture that uh Yossi see um posted on uh, a face, facebook post um and he's living there and you just see all these rockets go up and like these intercepts that they like there's hardly any rockets that ever touch the ground in Israel. their defense system is so good mm-hmm. right and the same thing with these drones like whenever we try uh you know shoot them down usually we're successful at it it's not a big problem i, I Iran shot one mm-hmm. down. Uh, which was a very expensive one it was like two million dollars drone or Classified, something. Yeah. So I, I mean, yeah, it's not hard to shoot these things down. And usually our missiles are way faster than the drones can fly. But these specific craft, throughout time, whenever we fire at them, it's either they shut off the plane, uh, and then the plane regains, you know, or the pilot has to eject, or it just flies away. Like it always takes the high road. Sometimes there has been cases of the pilots not returning. But that's for a different day. Uh, but, you know, the, the restraint that it, it, so far these things have shown towards our military, even though they're always around, especially in our, our nuclear facilities. Um, and I heard this, that we've never been able to successfully launch a nuke into space. Every time that we tried to send one, it never makes it. Hmm. And I th- that was told to, to me uh, after a podcast. I was like, huh, I need to look into that. Like, we've never successfully been able to launch one at, at yeah, sure. I don't know. I'd have to look that up. I mean, I know we've done a lot of play with it. We've,
1: we've blown them up in the stratosphere and all sorts of stuff. But um, I mean, that. I'd have to look that up because I mean, that's part of, uh, you know, part of the thing that's dependent on intercontinental ballistic missiles is the ability to go into space. And that's the difference between hypersonics. Um, hypersonics stay inside the atmosphere. And so I don't, that's interesting. I'll have to look that up before I can say that that's true.
0: But yeah, no, definitely let me know if you end up investigating that. I'm curious as if there's any, you know, uh, real validity to that. In closing here, do you have uh, anything coming up? A big article story? Do you have, are you planning on working on a book anytime right. soon? I have a literary agent that's been, uh, beat me up to, to work on a book, but I, it's a matter
1: of time, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I got a couple things cooking up. And so, um, I think, uh, you know, you, you people have probably become accustomed to it that, uh, uh, I tend to, especially with the UFO topic move slower than maybe they would like. Um, but that's, uh, but that's only because I try to put out information that that's, already been you know, thoroughly analyzed and so you can kind of look at these different perspectives and it's really in depth rather than just putting out something short and sweet and, and kind of letting everybody interpret what it is. Um, I guess the the, the best uh, kind of difference and example is is I, I don't put out WikiLeaks which if you saw with WikiLeaks you know a lot of times they get all this like there's this giant classified data dump and people have to go through it or parse through it or you can hear what Julian Assange or somebody from WikiLeaks tells you, it says, but unless you want to go through it, you don't know. But you're kind of dependent on that. Uh, Or if you look at something like how Bellingcat or when the Pentagon or uh, the Panama Papers were released, where um, there was a lot bigger impact, there was a lot more stories that came out. But this was stuff that journalists worked on for a year, you know, this kind of joint effort. So it was very analyzed from all these different perspectives. And so I do have a couple of things cooking up hopefully um we'll make it in time i don't know what are we we're just at mid-may try to make it for what what is what have people on twitter been calling it miracle may or miraculous may or whatever lots of ufo news coming out in may um so i do have a few things a few things a few things that that will definitely be coming out um
0: and do you find it tough? because you're doing a lot of pr too i mean you're doing a lot of interviews do you find it difficult finding enough time to do your research and writing amongst all these uh, podcasts and interviews that you're doing because you were mentioning that you got a team coming in tomorrow, doing some filming. So do you find that that impedes your writing time or your investigative time at all? Oh God. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's the, yeah, there's constantly, you know, and that's the thing is that, uh, since launching the debrief, it's kind of a, a blessing and a curse, a blessing in that we, we have a lot of freedom. I work with some great people now, um, to kind of put out news that we want to put out and how we want to put it out. Um, but at the same time, we, you know, there's a lot that's behind the scenes people don't realize and running it and keeping it running. And so it's, yeah, right. yeah, it's no longer, you know, when I was writing for popular mechanics or vice, um, I could just work on one story. <laughs> and now if my friends who work, uh, you know, people like Gideon Lewis, who just put out that, that big article in the New Yorker a good friend of mine, um, Talking to some of the executive producers from 60 minutes and everything I'm almost envious of them because they get to kind of just focus on one story and right. you know really you know dig in depth through it for for months and then put out something exciting um, where yeah no I've got uh, I've constantly got things going on as much as you know whether it's uh, debrief management yeah. running stuff or like you said I always try to make time. Um, to talk to people and come on shows like yours,
0: and because it's good, it's good to connect. With very people. much appreciated. Yeah, very much appreciated. Like uh, you're very knowledgeable, and obviously the books that you've read.
1: It it really. I mean, the best thing you can do is what I do, because like you just said, I don't have I don't have this uh, abundance of time to sit down and read uh, a three or four hundred page book all the time. But man, audiobooks are the best. You know, I'll put in the headphones and can listen to books while I'm doing all sorts of other things, run around with the kids and and everything else. But yeah, I would absolutely. I think that that's, uh, in fact, that's where a lot of my research gets done now is downloading audiobooks constantly and listening to them. And, um, I would, I would highly recommend that. I think that, um, you know, that's, there's a, there's an article that I'm working on now that is UAP related that I have been working on for, oh gosh, a couple months. And, uh, related to Russia and, and UFOs and right. I've gosh, I'm looking probably, forward to
0: that. Yeah.
1: yeah, it should be interesting, but I to kind of get a better handle and understanding on it. I've probably listened to I'm listening to one right now. So probably four plus this fifth one uh, of books on Russia that have nothing to do with UFOs, but understanding the political dynamics, the right. the the whole ball of wax. And so, like I said, hopefully when we go to print with that, I, I can give people a little more comprehensive picture um, in context. Like, what does this mean?
0: <laughs> right. Because the Russian people have been honest about the their UAP experience. It's just really the government that's been silent. The same thing <laughs> as what's happening in every other country. It's not like they're an exception to the rule, but no, we, um, I, I just want to say, you know, on behalf of the community that we're thankful for the debrief like the content that you guys have put out and i had uh a chrissy newton on yesterday and i said as much just that you know we're we're thankful for the stuff you guys are putting out and it's news the way news used to be and it's news that we want to know about right like what is going on in in the military what is going on with the disclosure and uh the debrief has become um popular rather quickly and for good reason uh, Thank you. I appreciate good, that. You guys are doing really good work. So, and I appreciate you coming on the podcast as well. Like I said, it's uh, it's always an honor to have you on, and you're you're quite knowledgeable on, on this subject. So, this is going. We're going to have to have you on again at some point sure. to talk about your article when it does come out. And like I said, if you have a book that's coming out, um, that we need to talk about as well, because people are going to want to read more, right?
1: Right. Well, yeah. No, that's and that's really finding time to sit down and write the book. But no, I appreciate it. That's I uh, really do. It makes you feel good. Um, you know, I'm just I'm thankful that we have you know a lot of people that seem to enjoy the work. But I, I'm probably you know most thankful for people like you said, Chrissy. I didn't realize you were just on the show, but that's great because yeah. people like Chrissy and MJ. I'm, I'm very fortunate to uh, they're the ones who do the real work and bust their ass more than people realize. So I'm fortunate to be around them. And so I'm sure they appreciate it. Yeah, I think you
0: know. I think you all uh, praise each other more than you praise yourselves, but I think you're all equally <laughs> contributing to this equally as hard. And, uh, you know, like I said, I'm impressed with the debrief, and I'm a big fan, so... If anybody here hasn't checked out the debrief, I would suggest that you do so. So, Tim, I thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And like I said, anything pops up on your end that you want to talk about on UAP, just hit me up anytime, man.
1: Sure, anytime. And likewise, man. Likewise. It's always a great conversation. I really enjoy it.